Good morning. Whoa. Hey, good job with the microphone up there, guys. Good morning and welcome. My name's Craig. I'm the senior pastor here, and it is it really is our privilege to have you with us. I hope that y'all know we mean that. We stand up and say it every Sunday, but it means a whole lot to me and to everybody here that you would take time out of, out of your week and your weekend to be here with us. So I hope that we honor you in the way that you honor us when you show up here on Sunday mornings. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. As you're turning, I'm going to ask you in a minute or give you a chance to stand. I do want to let you know on the front end, we're going to read 21 verses. So if, um, if, you, if you can't make that stand, we understand. Uh, but if you can, we're going to ask you to in just a minute to read with us or stand with us as we, as we read in just a moment. A couple of things to mention. Adam mentioned Vacation Bible School. I do hope that you will um, be paying special attention to that. There will be a meeting coming up about that in a couple of weeks. Also, right after service this morning, uh, right over here on this side of the sanctuary, there's going to be an opportunity. We've got some opportunities to do some refugee ministry with our church body. Uh, that refugee ministry could look a variety of different ways. One of the things may actually be welcoming a refugee family into our community in ways that we as a church family might be able to come alongside and support that ministry. Uh, another would actually be perhaps helping to minister to Ukrainian refugee families um, by, uh, by providing uh, English as second language training and, and hopefully sharing the gospel with some folks via Zoom or other online platforms. There will be a meeting about that right after service uh, in, in this little wing. We'll call it that. We'll call this the west wing of the building. So um, it's west. Don't, don't do that to me. I checked before I got up here. Um, so uh, if you're interested in that, uh, just right after service, um, gather over there. Uh, pro- probably five minutes after service or so, um, but uh, or they will probably begin that meeting about five minutes after service. So um, just just plan to, to be over there. Um, your your attendance there doesn't commit you to anything, but we will be asking you to write your name down if you're seriously interested, because for some of these things to take place, we're going to need a, a lot of volunteers. Uh, um, so we think about welcoming a refugee family into our community, and this will come up in the meeting, but that means volunteers to drive people to grocery stores and doctor's appointments and, and all sorts sorts of things, as well as people that can help people understand how to get registered for school, all these kind of things that would come in there. So if you're interested, please plan. Uh, Miss Aaron Taylor, Taylor will be leading that meeting. All right. Having said those things, I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's Word. We're going to read, again, if you can, we're going to read chapter, uh, Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through verse 21. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. 
The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you would show us this morning how it is that we may serve you in word and deed. Father, as we see the ministry example of your apostles, may we imitate them, Lord God, in obedience to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, my family and I were driving home. Um, I say several years ago. The pandemic messes everything up right. I do remember that it was during that. So however long that happened, I don't know. But some while back, we were driving home. We pulled into our neighborhood. And our, our neighborhood has sort of this long entry when you come in. It's big wide, and there's some trees and things right there. And as we pulled in, there was a truck stopped in the middle of the road. Well, it was sort of in, in this sort of wooded area um, off to the side of the road. Very odd looking situation. Um, no lights on. There was some guy out beside it. Um, things just looked a little awkward. I saw it and kept right on driving. Had all the kids and Angela in the car. And as I drove past, my children, loving as they are, said, Daddy, aren't you going to stop and help? And I pressed the gas. Daddy, aren't you going to stop and help? I said, well, guys, I, I will go back and help. But no, we are not all going to stop and help in this odd, strange, scary, horror movie-looking situation. So I took them home, and I dropped them off, and I turned around and drove back. And, and the situation was about as bad as it had appeared as we had driven by. Um, the fellow was having car trouble he was in just the worst kind of situation of life. I couldn't really fa follow all the things that was going on in his life. Uh, even my mere presence there uh, seemed to anger him. Uh, it, was, it was just a really odd situation. Uh, he was convinced he was out of gas. I went and got gas and put it in there. He, he wasn't out of gas. Uh, point is, uh, it, it was not a lot I could do. But the thing that struck me about that was that my children, having grown up in a Christian home and being exposed to the things of God in this church, my children saw us drive past a person in need, and my children cried out at the injustice taking place in the driver's seat. Dad, aren't you going to do something? Well, I had a responsibility there, not only to do something, of course, I also had a responsibility to make sure that I represented Jesus well to my children, right? Folks, the reality is that as followers of Jesus Christ... We've got to work diligently to serve our community in word and deed. There's got to be more to our 
loving Jesus than just our words. There also has to be more to loving Jesus than just our actions. We've got to wed those two things together, and we've got to serve Jesus with our hands and our feet and with our brains and our mouths. We see right here that Peter and John find themselves walking into the temple and being exposed to an opportunity to serve someone in need. And when that happened, Peter and John changed their plans. Folks, when the last time you were willing to have your plans changed because of the needs of somebody else? When's the last time that you were willing, you ready, to be inconvenienced because of the needs of someone else? See, the reality is a lot of us are a lot, lot, lot quicker to write a check to a need than we are to actually be willing to inconvenience ourselves for a need. Sometimes it's just easier to throw money at a problem than it is to actually throw ourselves at a problem and seek to find ways that we might make a solution to that situation. This morning, as we ask this question, how can we serve our community in word and deed, I want to point out three things that jump off the page here in Acts chapter 3. The first thing is that we need to be aware of needs around us. We need to be aware of needs around us. Do, do you see the world around you? I mean, do you actually see the world around you? Sometimes I can get tunnel vision, right? I don't actually see the world around me. I just see the place that I'm headed. I see the thing that I am interested in getting accomplished. I see the task in front of me. Folks, we've got to be willing to not just do this. We've got to be willing to do this, to look around at what might exist around us. Peter and John were on their way to worship but they were not blind to the needs around them. Peter and John didn't say, uh-oh, I'm going to be late to worship. I can't stop and help this person, right? How, how many of you would have walked past somebody in need sitting on our front porch just so you could be on time to get in here and worship? I hope not many of you. And if you did that this morning, don't tell me, okay? That was supposed to be funny. A little concern. Was there somebody out front this morning? How many of us would, would walk past or drive past a, a, a real need that we knew that existed just so that we could be on time to something else, so we could get to somewhere? Peter and John were on their way to worship. Don't miss that. They were going to something important, and it is not just something that was important to them. They were going to something that is important, period. They were going to attend worship, and yet as they walked in, they found this man in need, he wanted money. They said, I don't have any of that, but I've got something for you. Get up and walk. They saw a need, and they met the need. Folks, what steps do you take to identify needs around you? I mean, seriously, what steps do you I was talking with somebody at a baseball game last night, and it was the coldest baseball game I have ever attended in all my life. I'm not thawed out yet. Um, but I was talking to somebody, and, and, and this person said, you know, we were talking about the crisis in Ukraine, and, and I was just a bit struck. Uh, she said, you know, I don't watch any news. Uh, it's, it's just too hard for me to see all that. What, what really is going on? I was like, man, you know, like there, there's, there's sort of sticking our head in the dirt. And then there's the real complete ostrich effect where I just go, I don't like what I'm seeing. So I'm going to shove my head a little further into the dirt and pretend like these things aren't going on around me. Folks, there's a temptation for us to do that right in our own communities. Not, not just internationally. Well, let me back up. Sometimes there's a temptation for us to see what's happening in the world and not see what's happening with our neighbor. Me and Angela got married. Shortly after we got married, we moved into a little mill house that we rented. Uh, we had not been living there too long, and a lady moved in beside us. Uh, and the house that was beside us was dilapidated. It was not a good situation. Um, and the lady moved in without a vehicle and without much. 
Um, and she came and she sat on my front porch one day to tell us about all the things that were wrong in her life and all the things that she needed. And I'm not going to lie, we were trying our best to avoid because she was borrowing our phone daily because she didn't have any, any way to make phone calls. It was difficult. It was hard, and when we see those needs around us, y'all, it's so tempting for us just to pretend like they don't exist. Because if they don't exist, then I don't have to be inconvenienced by them. Okay? We've got to be aware. What are the things that you do to identify needs? Are you, do, do you read the news? Uh, do, do, do you ask other people? Are, are you involved in local ministries or local outreaches? A, a, at work, are you willing to ask people what's happening in their life, even if you know that by so doing it, it might make yours a little bit more challenging? Boy, isn't it easier just to pretend like nobody's got anything going on? Isn't it a lot easier just to pretend like I don't have to worry about it? Do you look around when you're at church and say, you know what? Susie over there doesn't look good. Let me check on her and see what's going on in her life. Something just seems a little wrong. Well, it's not just a temptation, though, for the record, for us just to put on blinders. There's also this temptation for us as believers in Jesus to sort of build these fortresses and live inside of them and pretend like there's not a world outside. That we sort of get into this idea that we're going to build these monasteries of sort and we're going to shield ourselves from all the hard things in the world around us. Folks, listen to me. If the people of God remove themselves from the world around us, then the darkness will not cease to prevail. Do you understand that? We've got to be salt and light in the world around us, which means that we've got to look at the places that are unseasoned and do all we can to go into those places. There are needs within our community. There are needs around you. What kind of needs exist? There's homelessness. There's loneliness. There are people struggling with mental health issues. Do you know that you might be able to have a part to play in alleviating some of these problems? 44% of our population in Camden right here, single-parent households. 44%. Folks, that's a need. That is a need. 60% of the people in our community have no church commitment. That's a need. And we can look around and see all the people that are showing up here and it feels so full. Listen to me. It's great inside of here and yet 25% of the people that live in this community have zero faith commitment. Do you understand that? We can get so excited about all the things that's happening right around us that we miss out on the needs that exist just past the fence. The needs that might exist just next door. As Peter and John walked in ready to worship, there's a guy sitting there and he says, Hey, look at me. Folks, do you know how tempting it is for all of us when those people are there, those problems are there, to just see them not as people but as problems? See them as problems, not just problems for somebody, but problems that are affecting me and problems that I want to avoid. Peter and John saw a problem and instead of saying, you know what, forget this, I've got business to tend to, they stopped what they were doing and were willing to be inconvenienced. Now my guess is when they realized what they were going to do, they knew they were fixing to have a lot more inconvenience. You ever wanted to just have a quiet, a quiet day? Any of y'all, you just wanted to like pretend like the world? I, I want these all the time, but I have four children. Do you understand? Like, I have four kids. There is no quiet in my house. This afternoon, Angela loves me a whole lot. And on Sunday, she threatens their life. Um, and she gives me like a corner of the house where nobody will bother me for about 45 minutes on Sunday afternoons. Uh, it's usually just a rocking chair up in my bedroom. And I just go sit up there. And, and if everything goes well, then there's, not, there's like not a kid running up and down the stairs. It's amazing. 
But we, we sort of all sometimes want those days, don't we? Just that moment when nothing's going to get in my way. I'm going to get to do what I want to do. We call that, you ready for this? We call that selfishness. Okay? I know, I know, you don't like to think of it that way. We have a new word for it in our world. What is that word? Self-care. Right? I need to practice self-care today. Angela, I need to practice self-care for the next month. Y'all, we can get so consumed with self-care that we forget that Jesus said that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. That means as much as you're caring for yourself, you better be caring for somebody else. We got this responsibility. Peter and John, when they were walking in, they knew the minute that we heal this guy, everything's going to fall apart. They were walking in to pray and to worship, and they knew that the minute they did it, we've been down this road. We, we've seen what Jesus does. We've seen how people respond. We saw this guy born blind get healed by Jesus, and when he was born, when they healed him, everybody came out of the woodworks and said, hey, what's going on? They knew that the minute that they healed this guy, everybody was going to show up. Their prayer time was fixing to be interrupted. But folks, even knowing that, they were still willing to be aware of the needs around them. They were still looking for the ways that they could serve and that they could minister, that they could care for others. Well, let's just make sure that we're always willing to look around and find ways that we might be able to care for others. The second thing we need to be willing to do is to help where we can. Do you know that we can't fix everything in the world? We can't do it all. Sometimes in particular situations, we can't do much of anything. But we can do whatever we can. This is what's great about this situation with Peter and John. This guy says, I need money. Peter says, man, I'm broke. I got nothing except this one thing. And what I have, I'm going to give you in full measure. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Now, folks, you're probably not going to be able to give somebody the opportunity to walk. Right? But there's a great truth for us right here. We can't always meet every need. And we don't need to feel guilty for our inability to meet every need. Instead, we need to do what we can where we can. As we look at, for instance, the catastrophe in Ukraine right now, there's not much we can do, right? But one thing that we might be able to do is to provide ESL and gospel witness to Ukrainian refugees. We might be able to do that. So what do we need to do? Let's figure out what we can do and see if we can't get involved with that. That's what the interest meeting is about this morning. It's about here's an opportunity, here's a need in the world around us, and there may be a way for us to play just a small part in meeting that need. As you look around at the needs around you, keep this in mind, though. It's not always the case that God sends you somewhere so that you can lay hands on somebody and pray over them. Do you know that God may be sending you as an answer to a prayer? Have you ever considered that? God may have sent you as an answer to a prayer. As you're looking for the needs around, uh, needs around you, and you're figuring out how you can help where you can, be aware, you may be the answer to somebody's prayer. What could that possibly look like? Right? You show up and somebody says, I've just been praying for somebody to give me a ride somewhere. Well, I've got a car. You need to go somewhere. I mean, hey, well, let me call somebody and see what we can do. Right? I mean, there's some ridiculous things that happen. How is it that you might be the answer to someone's prayer? Oh, so often we over-spiritualize, don't we? 
Brother, I have a need. Well, I'm going to pray for you. What if this man had looked up at Peter and John and said, I need money. They said, we're going to pray for you, brother. Have a good day. See, they saw the need, but then they said, we want to do what we can do. This guy has a problem. Folks have no doubt been praying for him. We need to do something here. We're the answer to this man's prayer because we have Christ. Folks, when you live your life realizing that you might be the answer to prayer rather than the person to offer a prayer, it changes your perspective. It changes us because we walk in not thinking of ourselves as God's gift to the world around us. So let's be careful, right? Men, you probably aren't the answer to your wife's prayers. I'm sorry. Okay? She was praying for something else and you showed up and she settled. I mean, I've heard. I don't know if it's true. What might it look like for us to be the answer to someone's prayer? How does it change my perspective? It changes my perspective when I say, Lord God, I am a servant to be used according to your will. Lord God, I'm a vessel for you to use as you desire. When I walk through life saying, God, how do you want to use me? Use me, right? Now, if I said that about another human, you guys would be offended. We don't always think about it that way. I say, hey, brother so-and-so, how do you want to use me? That sounds kind of unkind and unenjoyable. It's rare that you submitted yourself to another person and said, use me however you will. We generally say, you're not going to use me. I'm here to do blah, 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 whatever I want to do. We say, however, to the Lord, use me as you will. I'm just a tool that God can do with whatever he wants to do. When I see it that way, then I recognize I might be the answer to someone's prayer. And being the answer to someone's prayer sometimes means just being willing to do whatever I can. Not to get caught up in all the things that I can't do or that I won't be able to accomplish Instead, focus on what you can do and trust that God has sent you to do what you can do. He sent Peter and John into this place because there was something they could do that nobody else could do. They couldn't walk in and write this guy a million-dollar check to pay for his medical expenses. Instead, what they could do was take away his medical need. What if Peter and John had just looked at him and they ended with that first statement? We don't have any money. Period. But they didn't, did they? They said, this is what I can do. I can't do that, but I can do this. Folks, God's called us all in different capacities. There's some people that can't do other things, but they can write a check. For those folks, they should write a check. You should do that. Some of you can't write a check, but you can do other things. Then you should do those other things. You find yourself speaking with someone in need. It's funny how somebody says, you know what, I have this thing that's broken in my life and I don't know how to fix it. Well, I can't afford to help you, but I can come over and walk with you. What are the things that you can do? Help where you can. Several years ago, I got a phone call. Um, I've shared this before, but I got a phone call. Hey, we don't know if we're going to have enough people to coach to have a middle school football team. Can you help us? Right? And I said, sure, I can't do a lot of things. I can't be there these times, but I can do that. These are the things I can do. Well, that'll be great. If you can do those things, that'll help us out a whole lot. 
What are the things you can do? Folks, it's okay to say, I can do this, and then move forward. Do things you can. Uh, and then third this morning, always prioritize the gospel. We're going to tie all this together. Um, there, there's a, a pretty famous story of, of, of a Russian gray fox experiment. So it's a gray fox experiment that happened in the Siberian area. Um, and there was a scientist um, who decided he wanted to work with these Russian gray foxes. They were foxes that were uh, kept in captivity for breeding, pur- or excuse me, for uh, fur purposes. Um, and he decided he wanted to work with selective breeding to see what he could accomplish. And so he would, would interact with the foxes, and the ones that were friendly, he would set them to the side, and they keep a track. And if they were, were friendly toward human beings, he would set those aside, and he'd put those in, in, in one place so that they could be bred together. And, and over time, what he found is when he took enough friendly foxes and put them through enough stages of breeding, and he kept just breeding the most friendly foxes with each other, over time, what happened is that those foxes looked a lot more like dogs than they did like foxes. They do up floppy ears and waggy tails, and they do up those little eyeballs that look at you real sad all the time. That's what dogs do. Cats look at you with murderous eyes. Y'all keep that in mind. Okay? You can't trust a cat. You can't. They'll try to kill you in your sleep. There weren't cats in the Garden of Eden until after the fall. Right? The serpent was crafty and cunning, and he had a cat by his side. That's in there. Um... But anyway, over time, through selective breeding, these foxes began to act more like pets. That's interesting. Wild foxes actually act a little bit more like cats than they do like dogs. They're sort of feline in their movements. When, When they stalk and when they hunt, they look more like cats. But over time, these foxes were domesticated. Folks, one of the reasons that we have to prioritize the gospel is that if we're not careful, we can domesticate the gospel through careful breeding and so that it looks something less like the gospel and more like something else. It develops floppy ears and waggy tails and it's cuddly, but it doesn't look like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, when we talk about loving our community in word and deed, we have to make sure that it is both word and deed. We've got to serve the homeless. We've got to care for the needy. We've got to minister to, to, to single parents. We've got to, we've got to care for children who are growing up without fathers. We've got to do all of these things and work diligently to provide hope and healing. But we must also prioritize the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where some of the reaction against mercy ministry exists in evangelical circles. The idea exists that if we do too many of those hands-on things that we'll neglect the gospel and we'll just develop a social gospel. J. Max Stiles, in a really great book called Marks of the Messenger, has pointed to the way that gospel can be lost in only four generations. He says that first generation the gospel is accepted and the second generation the gospel can be assumed. An assumed gospel is when we begin to do the work of Jesus and assume that somebody else is going to tell somebody about Jesus. In the third generation, the gospel can be confused. So we don't just assume that somebody else is going to tell somebody about Jesus. We actually confuse the gospel with doing mercy ministries. And so we'll say something like, well, when I cared for the needy, I was proclaiming the gospel with my words. 
That's a confusion of the gospel because according to God's word, the gospel is the proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That's the good news. In the fourth generation, the gospel can be lost. And this is how it happens. In the fourth generation, so in the first generation, somebody got saved. They love Jesus and they accept the gospel. In the second generation, they assume that as they raise their children, they'll grow up knowing about the gospel. In the third generation, their children are confused about what the gospel is because nobody explicitly taught them about the gospel. And so they begin to believe that the gospel is doing good things. But in the fourth generation, here's what they say. I can do good things without the gospel. There's no reason for me to spend my time with all those onerous expectations of the Bible. I'll just do good things. Folks, we've got to make certain that we serve our community in deed and word, in word and deed. And the two have to be wedded together. When we meet a physical need, we meet a need that is visible and obvious. And sometimes we can meet that need immediately. A hungry person is fed, for instance, and we get the immediate gratification of having seen that task accomplished. Not only do we get the immediate gratification of actually seeing and having done something that matters, we're also going to get that dopamine hit that comes from it, right? I did something good and it makes me feel good because I see what actually happened. Gospel works harder work. Gospel work can be long and it doesn't happen in concrete terms. For those reasons, among others, it can be easy when we have opportunities to meet physical needs to sort of push the gospel to the side. When a crowd gathered, Peter didn't say, look at what I did. When the crowd gathered, Peter didn't say, I don't have time for all of y'all. I came here to, to heal this guy. Let me move on. The Bible says when the crowd gathered that Peter stood up and started preaching. I've told you that repeatedly we're going to find out in the book of Acts, preaching, 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 preaching. They're, the book of Acts is a book of preaching. They're constantly proclaiming the gospel message of Christ, the good news, the gospel. And they do it in this long fashion. They don't give light sermons. They walk all the way through the Old Testament. They talk about the prophets. They deal with hard things. And then they get real personal. You killed him. Folks, when the good deed was accomplished, Peter saw it as an opportunity to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to wed the gospel to mercy ministries within our church and within our own individual lives. But listen to me, we must not jettison mercy ministries for the exclusivity of proclaiming the gospel. To do so is to take part of God's word and throw it away. And it's not just the Old Testament. James 1.27 says... Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We cannot neglect mercy ministry. To do so is to resist the explicit commands of Scripture. We are to care for orphans, widows, refugees, the poor, the outcast, and the hurting. And we must not refuse this responsibility. But in so doing, we must never neglect the gospel. Gospel proclamation is not an enemy of gospel ministry. The two must walk hand in hand. James 1.27, back to that, says religion is pure and undefiled before God. We sometimes don't like that word religion, do we? 
We, we hear this in, in, in evangelical circles. I, 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 it's a pet peeve of mine, okay, just for the record. I don't want to talk about religion. I want to talk about a relationship. Just call it what you will, okay? We're talking about Jesus, all right? And, and, and a relationship with Jesus Christ, a person who has a relationship with Jesus is a Christian, which means they are part of the Christian religion. So if you want to call it that, that's fine. It's just a pet peeve of mine, and if I offended you, I'm sorry. I'll say a lot worse things before it's all over. But for those of you that are really hung up on that, watch. You ready? A right relationship with Jesus leads to evangelism and acts of mercy. You hear me? There's an and up there. Evangelism and acts of mercy. James calls it religion that is pure and undefiled. But if religion sits wrong with you, then we'll call it a right relationship with Jesus. Either way, the same thing holds true. We do not get to say we're not worried about all those things. We only care about the gospel. Because to do that is, first of all, to perform a ministry that doesn't look at all like Jesus, that doesn't look like the acts of the apostles, and certainly doesn't sound like the proclamation of James, and it doesn't look at all like the Old Testament. Now, I get it. There's a reaction against sort of what, what gets deemed now social justice and social gospel. And there's a reaction because we tend to see these opposite ends of the spectrum. Folks, we've got to step out of politics and into the Bible. Charles Spurgeon was once asked, how did he reconcile free will and the sovereignty of God? And I appreciate how Spurgeon, I mean, I say I appreciate Spurgeon, like I should appreciate everything he ever said, right? But there's so much wisdom in what he said here. He said, I never saw two friends that needed to be reconciled. Folks, how do we reconcile sort of social work, if you want to call it that, ministry, practical ministry with proclamation ministry? We need not reconcile the two. They are two friends that are to walk hand in hand. And when we meet physical needs, we meet them in the name of Jesus Christ. With the power of Jesus Christ. Why do we do all sorts of good things and care for all sorts of people? The gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to. God has saved us. And because God has saved us... We have the responsibility and the necessity to carry the good news to others. The gospel and mercy ministry should not stand in opposition to one another. Throughout the book of Acts, mercy ministries lead to gospel opportunities. Now we have to keep them together. The only time this gets out of whack... It's when we do one without the other. And I said one without the other. Either one without the other. Because either one without the other presents and creates an unbalanced, unbiblical Christianity. That's right. If the only thing we ever do is evangelism and we don't actually seek to alleviate suffering in the world around us, we are living an unbalanced Christian life. Period. 
It doesn't matter which book of the New Testament we run to. We see commands to do things like care for orphans, care for widows. Paul says to Timothy, keep a good list of them. Make sure that you're providing for their needs. When we get to Acts chapter 6, we're going to see that the church almost split over how well they were going to care for and minister to widows within the church. It was that important. It was so important, in fact, that the ministry to widows in the church created a new paradigm for the way the church was going to do ministry. And it's a paradigm that's carried over since then. It was that important. We are to care for others. Which leads us really to our conclusion in a much quicker sermon than I anticipated. Does the world know you belong to Jesus? Does the world know you belong to Jesus? They will know by your word and your deeds. It doesn't matter which one you neglect. If you neglect to proclaim the gospel or to live out the gospel, the world will have little confidence in your commitment to Jesus. Let me explain it. That's how we say it up around cowpens. If you act like Jesus, but never tell others about Jesus, so when I say act like, I mean if you try to meet people's needs, if you're concerned for the suffering of others around you. So if you minister to others in that way, if you meet physical needs, but you never tell others about Jesus, it is possible that the world will see you as a good person, but never as a follower of Jesus. Now, side note, you ready? In many parts of our non-Christian world, that is wonderful and perfectly acceptable. Okay? Right? So you can give me all the good stuff without the Jesus part. And that's great. That's what they would like. Because Jesus puts expectations upon people. Right? Paul says you killed him and you need to repent of your sin. That's what the gospel is. Okay? So if you neglect that part, they might like it okay. It's comfortable. Right? But they'll never know that you belong to Jesus. They'll never be saved. Now... If you talk about Jesus, but you live like a jerk, the world will call you a hypocrite. And even worse, they may decide that if that's what a Christian is, I don't want any part of it. Now watch this. The world really likes the guy or the girl that does a lot of good things but doesn't put any kind of biblical expectation upon them. So they get pretty popular in the world. Sometimes the church really likes the guy that talks a really good game about Jesus and stands strong and says, we only care about the gospel and we don't need to waste our money doing that. That's not real gospel ministry. The only thing that matters is the gospel, period. That person she can be really popular within the church because she knows the Word. She can teach it. She knows all the things. She led 78 Bible studies last week, you know. He told 437 people about Jesus. None of them got saved because he screamed at them, but he told them. He's got a notch on his belt and he's got all the pins on his shirt. He knows how many people he told. Okay? 
So that person can be real popular within the church, and we scratch our heads, and we go, I don't understand why that guy, nobody's coming to Jesus. I mean, he knows so much. You get out in the community, you go, hey, have you met, have you met, did you meet Sam? And they say this, he goes to your church? Yeah. Don't you love this one? I will never, ever be there. Why? Man, I saw him cheat so-and-so out of $500 last week. He didn't pay his, but he didn't do this, whatever it might be. I watched him walk past a person in need and just ignore them. Do you understand? The person that doesn't proclaim Jesus can be popular in the world. The person who doesn't do any good things can be popular in the church. But neither one of them look like Jesus. Right? Jesus had this way of sometimes making religious people a little uncomfortable. Of doing all kind of good things and being in all sorts of places. But never, ever, ever getting soft on the truth. The world knows we belong to Jesus when we serve him in word and deed. In other words, the world knows we belong to Jesus when we tell people about Christ. And then we live like Christ. We act like Jesus. It's ever occurred to you that Jesus was this wild fundamentalist preacher. Okay? And he, he kind of was. And he got invited to all these parties. It doesn't make much sense when you think about it. Right? I mean, it does, you think about how did Jesus end up in the home of a tax collector? Why would they want him there? They know what he stood for. How does he end up hanging out with prostitutes? They know what he stands He's a teacher. Did it ever occur to you that maybe somehow Jesus was able to marry together this proclamation of the truth? And the loving of the world around him and ministering to them in very real and palpable ways in such a way that they still wanted to be around him even though he continued to challenge them in their sinful ways. See, the world knows we belong to Jesus when we serve him in word and deed. And here's my question for you this morning is this. Does the world know you belong to Jesus? See, I, I, I didn't ask what your perfect attendance record is at church. I asked that the world knows you belong to Jesus. I wear a wedding band. I, I don't work out in, in, uh, in public gyms anymore. Um, but uh, uh, when I did, I, I always, and I, I just have a gym at my house, but I, I always took my wedding band off. Um, but it, that, that always made me kind of uncomfortable when I was in, in, a, in a place where gyms are, are places where marriages can get broken a lot of times. And so it always bothered me, but at the same time, you just destroy it with a bar. And so I made it sort of a commitment. Like everybody that knew me in those places was going to know that I was married really quickly. Now in the summertime, I get this rich golden tan. Um, some of y'all are too new to recognize that's a lie. Um, but uh, I'm always this white, just always. Uh, but, uh, but, but in the summer, you can see a little bit when I take it off. But, but for the most part, I, I got, you don't, it just doesn't jump out. Matter of fact, I, I, 
we got married, I, I didn't really like wearing a wedding band. I didn't wear much, I didn't wear jewelry. I told Angela, I said, baby, I don't really like this. This is really uncomfortable. I can't get used to it. She ne- y'all, she never even batted an eye, nothing. She just looked at me, she said, you better, and she turned around and walked off. Um, so I have. Well, I'd walk into a gym, and, and I'd take it off, and I'd put it in my bag. Um, <clears throat> but I, I made sure that anybody that met me in that place knew within just a couple minutes that I belonged to somebody. Like, it was an intentional part of my life. So that if Angela and I ever ended up in there together, they might say something, oh, is that your wife? I've heard a lot about you. That meant a lot to me that they would know. Folks, does the world know you belong to Jesus? Like, if you lived your life in such a way that they say, boy, that's what a Christian, if I knew a Christian, that's what I would imagine they would do. And in such a way that they've heard so much that if they were to meet your Savior, they said, well, I've heard so much about you. Man, I've heard so much about you. The Lord's doing great things in our church. It's an incredible blessing. But folks, before we celebrate all that God's done around us, we need to regularly look in the mirror and ask, Lord, what are you doing in me? So this morning, I ask you that. Does the world know? Because see, if the world doesn't know that you belong to Jesus, today needs to be a day of repentance and change. See, Peter looked at those people gathered in Solomon's portico and he said, Hey, repent! And turn. If the people around you don't know you belong to Jesus, then listen to me. Today is the day that you need to repent. Turn away from that sin. Find those people tomorrow and apologize for the ways that you may have offended them or you may have done them wrong. And then tell them about the Savior who changed your life. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus... Let me apologize. Because some of you need to hear this. Some of you don't know Jesus today because you met too many Christians that didn't look like Jesus at all. That's the truth. Some of you have been hurt by people who claim to love Jesus. Folks, I'm sorry that's happened to you. But let me encourage you. Don't allow what somebody else has done to get in the way of you experiencing the most incredible person the world's ever known. God loves you regardless of what's happened to you and he desires to have a relationship with you. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And When we do, would you come this morning? Please allow me to introduce you to the Savior who changed my life. Some of you may be here today. You've got other things you'd like to pray about. This altar's open. I'd be happy to pray with you. Some of you have been through our Next Steps class and ready to join our church. Today could be the day for that. However it is that the Lord is working in your life, would you respond to Him today in obedience? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for loving us. Father, help us to be more like Jesus in word and in deed.
And Father, if there be one here today who doesn't know you, Father, for whatever reason, Lord, I pray that you would take away all the things that have gotten in the way and that today, Lord God, they would be able to see clearly a God that loves them and has a plan. God that's made a way and they'd be saved. We pray these things in the powerful, incredible, loving name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Stand with us this morning as we sing.